0: Welcome to our first 11th hour presentation of the week. Um, Before we get started, I'd like to ask everyone to switch off their cell phones. Um, Also, there's a handout. It looks like almost everyone has it, but if you didn't get a copy, they're in a chair right over there by the door. Michael Morse joins us today to discuss that magical hybrid mystery, that genre-bending weirdo offspring of music in the sentence, that ambiguous but oh so fascinatingly blockish form, the prose poem. He'll take us through a series of examples and discuss the strange mix of lyricism, density, character, and rhyme that combine within this enigmatic art form. Michael Morse's first book, Void and Compensation, will appear from Canarium Books in the spring of 2015, which we're all very excited for. And he's published poems in various journals, including A Public Space, the American Poetry Review, the Iowa Review, and Plowshares. Honors include fellowships at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the McDowell Colony, and Yaddo. Please join me in welcoming Michael Morse. Thank you, um, Yeah, do it. Sort of.
1: Oh.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: How's that? Can You guys hear me okay in the back? Welcome to your week, or welcome back if you've already been here. Um, so I'm going to be talking about the prose poem, but I want to do something um, a little goofy first. Um, we're, we're gonna. This is sort of going to be call and response, kind of. Okay. And I'm going to split the, the auditorium into three distinct parts, and each part is going to have a line to recite. Um, this, is, uh, this, is, this is from a poem called Allison, which is by that famous poet Anonymous, written in the 13th and the 14th century. And it's Middle English, so you're going to sound a little bit like the Muppet chef, but it's okay, and you're not going to really know what you're going to be saying. Um, but as you're facing the auditorium, so every as you're facing the front, everybody who's all the, all the way on the far left in that little section, okay, you guys are going to have a line, okay. So I'm going to give you your line, all right. So listen, and then we'll we'll try it out together. We'll practice it. Your line is, "And handy, happey, happy, e-hent." All right. I'll say it again. Again, you're going to sound like the Muppet Chef, but give into it. It's okay. "And handy, happey, happy, e-hent." Can you recite that with me? Okay, good. That's and that's this row right here. Just this row. Amy, you're the ringleader, so get him in shape. And handy hap e e hint. It's not on your sheet, I know. Just sound-wise. And handy hap e habi e hint. Ready? hap All right, good enough. Middle row. Your line is e hot from heaven it is me sent. Hot from heaven, it is me sent. My crew of four, my excellent crew of four. Your line is going to be from all women. Me love is lent. Everybody's going to want to move over to that. From all women, me love is lent. From all women, me love is lent. Okay. From all women, me love is lent. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to go through one more time. So, your side, all the way over. In handy, happy, happy, e This is so hard, I know. Because I'm an idiot. I didn't print it out for you. One more time. In handy, hap happy, e Middle. E hot from heaven. It is me sent. Okay. E hot from heaven. It is me sent. Last. From all women, me love is Lent. And then I have the last part, and I'll just supplement that. And light on Allison. So I'm going to lead you through it, and I just want you to listen. You have no idea what you're saying, right? It's Middle English, but we're going to talk about it, and we're going to really make the link as to how this relates to the prose poem in about two seconds, okay? So again, in handy e hap, i e happy e hent. ye hot from heaven, it is me sent. From all women, me love is Lent and light on Alasun. You can hear that music in there, right? Okay. So let's try it. Let's bust it out. Okay? You ready? And I'll read it with you. All right? So starting with you guys. One, two, three. And handy, hap, ye habi, ye hent. From, in- from in- heaven, in- it is in- me in- sent. In- from all women, in- in- me love is lent. And light on Alice soon. All right. Give yourselves a hand. You've done really now, what's the point of all that? Well, what you've just been doing is you've been playing with an Anglo-Saxon line of poetry, and it's a refrain from this much larger poem called Allison. And if you hear the music of it, first crew, your line was en handi hap ehent. You have a two-beat line followed by a pause called a *sejura*, followed by two more beats. And it's got this alliterative quality where you sound like you're clearing your throat, right? "En handi hap i habi e hent hot from heaven, it is me sent. From all women, me love is lent, and light on soon. which breaks the music a little bit, right? But you have that two beat line followed two beats, sejura, two beats, two beats, sejura, two beats, same thing. And then the little shift in the music. And as many of you know, in any kind of art form we often have this distinction where we have pattern and repetition and then we break that pattern, and that's what often makes the music interesting. So when we talk about poetry, and we go back to Middle English, we go back to the Anglo-Saxon line, we have a distinct line that's got a certain metrical beat to it. And poetry, originally, we call it verse, right? And it comes from that Latin word versus, which sort of signified where the plowman would make his turn to make a row. And that's the nature of the line. And what we're doing today is we're talking about this weird hybrid form called the prose poem. And if we have poem in it, we think, well, music, maybe set music, or maybe coming from something metrical, but the prose poem wants to futz with that. okay? And that's what we're going to talk about. So you all have a packet. Again, there's a packet by the door if you didn't get one. Um, and the title of this talk today is called The Prose Poem Rebel with a Clause. Because okay? we're playing off of this idea of if a poem is a line of verse and it's got that metrical musical quality like we just heard in the Anglo-Saxon line, well, what happens when we try to combine these things into a different hybrid form? So what's going to happen is I'm going to talk sort of with you, hopefully not at you, for about 15 minutes or so. We're going to look at some poems, and then hopefully you have something to write with and write on. Um, so if you have a pen or a pencil or your laptop, we're going to actually try our hand at at least starting a couple of exercises today. So you can get out whatever gear you need or whatever you have with you for today. Um, so, the talk. The prose poem, Rebel with a Clause, um, I've been a bird watcher ever since I was a little kid, Um, and I love um, that it's informed just about everything else I do. I'm a sucker for wings, for songs, for colors, for variety. Um, And birders with varying degrees of obsession tend to tabulate each new species they encounter uh, in the field by dutifully checking it off on a life list. Um, even the hard and fast delineation of species, even with that, like the bird, a, a redstart, which is a warbler, or a pied billed greed, you have these distinct species that are out there. But then there are also these funky incidentals that are out in the world um, that I've always been fascinated by hybrids, back crosses, rule breakers. Baltimore Orioles can be found in the East, and Bullock's Orioles are Westerners. And yet, that said, in the Twain, in the Great Plains, sometimes they meet and they overlap, and we get a hybrid. Same thing with the spotted toey and the eastern toey, so too with the ranges and romantic overtures of golden-winged warblers and blue-winged warblers. They overlap, and where the boundaries blur, so does nomenclature. The emergence of hybrids led Linnaeus, the botanist and physician who laid the foundations for modern taxonomy, to see that species are not fixed and uh, invariable entities. The same could be said for poetic forms. And later in my life, when my love of song and image drifted towards language, I fell in love with a literary hybrid, the prose poem. What is a prose poem? Um, Well, typically, like a poet, let me first tell you what it's like. Um, I'm not completely off-base here. You ask poets for definitions, and you're likely to get a simile in instead. So, um, and true to form, when poets tend to talk about prose poems, they wax figurative about it. In his introduction to Peter Johnson's book, Pretty Happy, Charles Simic labels the prose poem an impossible amalgamation of lyric poetry, anecdote, fairy tale, allegory, joke, and journal entry. The epigraph for Charles Simic's prize-winning collection, um, The World Doesn't End, which is actually on top of your handout, playfully sets up the blurring to come with a Fats Waller quote, Let's Waltz the Rumba. Ed Hirsch remarks that these compulsively modern creatures may look like prose, but they think metaphorically like poetry. I'm fond, too, of James Richardson's idea of the prose poem's kinship with the tomato. It might be a fruit in botany class, but more likely a vegetable if you're making a fruit salad. Prose poems can haunt, they can excite, they often eschew closure, and their ambiguity tantalizes and invites a reader to linger. Much like Wallace Stevens' Blackbird, they employ both song and the equally powerful silence of just after. Intent on breaking away from inherited norms, the prose poem tends to resist categorization. What are we to do, ribs poet and editor David Young, if poets can't control themselves and stick to their line? Prose poetry relishes its outsider status. And yet, much like a rebel faction that suddenly finds itself with seats in Parliament, they realize they have to learn how to play well with others to recognize history. The birth of the form tracks back to a Frenchman named Aloysius Bertrand, whose collection, Gaspard de la Nuit, was published in 1842 after his death. Um, That collection features singing masons, tulip merchants, a village flaming like a comet, dwarves, lepers, a thumb that's likened to a fat Flemish innkeeper with a bad temper, and a prophesying cricket. Bertrand's clipped, imagery-laden paragraphs influenced the form's first bad boy rock star, Charles Baudelaire, and his posthumously published little poems and prose swam against the tide of French verse. Accomplished with Alexandrin's, which is the dominant 12-syllable line in French poetry, Baudelaire nonetheless challenged formal expectations. His irreverence has delighted jokers and literary malfeasance everywhere, with its thuggish counsel, whether giving us imperatives to get drunk on wine, on poetry, or on virtue, if you wish, or offering portraits of bizarre characters who, among other things, might bow to a donkey and wish it a happy new year. Baudelaire, in turn, inspired Rimbaud and Mallarmé, whose work then influenced a range of 20th century poets, from symbolists to surrealists, like Benjamin Perret, Robert Desnos, and Max Jacob. Gertrude Stein might be our first American prose poet of note, and the form finds itself alive and well today in a number of anthologies uh, that offer readers a range of contemporary practitioners, and we might talk about a couple of those anthologies later. Um, but the prose poem never strays far from controversy. In his introduction to my favorite anthology of prose poems, Models of the Universe, David Young remarks that the prose poem, quote, upsets the makers of categories and the givers and second guessers of prizes, end quote. Sure enough, back when Simic's The World Doesn't End won the 1990 Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, poet Lewis Simpson protested that Simic's work wasn't verse, it was prose. The terms flash fiction or microfiction further complicate matters and highlight the confusion and brow twerking that often surrounds the prose poem. Uh, For our purposes today, however, we might simply define a prose poem as a poem in prose. Thanks, Michael. A poem with lyric DNA imagery, figurative language, and music that does not privilege the line as the primary unit of construction. So when we heard that Anglo-Saxon poem to start today, we hear the line and the music that defines the line as the thing that makes it a poem, perhaps more than anything else. In the prose poem, sentences and paragraphs inherit the lead roles from lines and stanzas. And in turn, that music tends to emerge (coughs) relying on more non-metrical forms of music making. Things like repetition, often in the form of catalogs or lists of objects and images. And it leans on various syntactical patterns and rhetorical structures, too, to make that kind of music. Simic's The World Doesn't End is a good place to explore the forms, machinations, and so you can get that packet ready that you've got in front of you. the poems in this collection are terse, they're spare, they're darkly humorous, they're kind of like trick-or-treat vignettes with a Halloween flair, a little bit like Tim Burton's movies, if you remember those. Um, strong images such as Simic's striking incidental scenes are often juxtaposed with each other, um, and comparisons are a key component. Similes, metaphors, they're figurative cousins. As opposed to celluloid or digital images, however, prose poems offer vivid tableaus made of language that play with syntax and pacing. Fragments and simple declarative sentences can generate a clipped staccato pace. More elaborate clauses can coordinate and subordinate time and subordinate time and perspective. Tonally, the voice in Simic's prose poems tends to paint the fantastic as ordinary. A disinterested, often neutral surface belies a chilly, emotional undertow. Let's take a look together at that that first one that's uh, on the top left of your packet. I was stolen by the gypsies. My parents stole me right back. Then the gypsies stole me again. This went on for some time. One minute I was in the caravan suckling the dark teat of my new mother. The next I sat at the long dining room table, eating my breakfast with a silver spoon. It was the first day of spring. One of my fathers was singing in the bathtub. The other one was painting a live sparrow the colors of a tropical bird. Real quickly, I just want to call your attention to that semicolon in the last paragraph. And if you can notice how swiftly it connects with verb, those two clauses. The prose poem often works in this stylistic realm, which we define as parataxis, P-A-R-A-T-A-X-I-S, where you juxtapose statements with minimal indication of their connection or their relation. Narrative prose, in contrast, commonly uses connectives, because, when, then, that clearly outline and define the relationships among sentences and clauses. And the rhetorical term there is hypotaxis. So parataxis is sort of famous, you know, if you think of Caesar saying, vini, vidi, vici, right? I came, I saw, I conquered. Boom, boom, boom. You get that music that's quick because there are no connectives that make those clauses sync together in any kind of subordinate fashion. I teach high school. I can't get away from the grammar. Sorry, guys. Um, Key to Simic's poems also is a vivid imagery and musical composition via syntax and rhetoric. There's often antitheton, which is a proof or a composition composed of contraries, and its cousin antithesis, more commonly known, a juxtaposition of contrary words or ideas that often are at work in these poems. Um, In a prose poem that's not in your packet, Um, that's from this collection. It begins, Dear Friedrich, um, and there's a laundryman who can't read, and yet he's flipping through a book at midnight with the light on. Uh, His daughter, who brings him dinner, wears a short skirt, who takes long strides in that skirt when she walks. And outside, with their webs, spiders are joining street lamps to dark trees. Such parallel constructions are common, and they complement a frequent tendency in prose poems to generate catalogs and lists of images. So that juxtaposition of images via the catalog, plus some of that syntactical stuff that I mentioned, is often the musical tool that propels a prose poem. Sometimes we make music by asking questions or making statements. Um, And David Joel Friedman, in a poem that's not in your packet, works musically by combining the inquisitive with the imperative. And just listen to how the questions in this prose poem generate a kind of music. It's called the welcome. Do you wish to immigrate to my heart? Where are your papers? What are your purposes? Are you lost? Are you broken? Come to the chamber of my heart for safety. Remember the old country. I was not there. I was waiting for you here. Do you wish to be naturalized in my arms? Let me instruct you in the new tongue. Tread softly. Death, too, first makes inquiry, then shows the way. Come, pledge allegiance to my tattered, proud flag. Here and only here, the streets are paved with gold. So you can see how those juxtapositions can be imagistic, or they can be structural or rhetorical, like with the repeated questions of, do you wish to immigrate to my heart? Where are your papers? What are your purposes? Um... Those juxtapositions also work in the realm of the image, and when we put two strange fellow bedfellows side by side, we let the sparks fly where they may. The lineage of the contemporary short story, the verisimilitude of portraiture and the wildness of the fairy tale, is often at work in prose poems as well, even as they tend, like lyric poems, to privilege the episodic and the associational. In one vivid scene, a Simic prose poem can simultaneously balance the fantastical with the dark hues of a war-torn Yugoslavian childhood. So you can check out the second Simic poem. It's to the right of that first one on your packet. We were so poor, I had to take the place of the bait in the mouse trap. All alone in the cellar, I could hear them pacing upstairs, tossing and turning in their beds. These are dark and evil days, the mouse told me as he nibbled my ear. Years passed. My mother wore a cat fur collar, which she stroked until its sparks lit up the cellar. one of the things that uh, there are various things that are at work in here Um, the first sentence sort of echoes a comedian's introductory I just flew in from LA and boy are my arms tired there's a little bit of a shtick in Simic right we were so poor I had to take the place of the bait in the mousetrap but that dark humor is sort of silly yet chilly and it's evocative and matter of fact also in it's deadpan delivery so juxtaposition is a huge force at work in the prose poem, putting those two strange things together, those two images side by side. And things that don't seem to go together often thrive in the prose poem. Kids will often describe them as dreamlike. And with their quirky and surreal juxtapositions, Russell Edson's prose poems uh, show him to be a master of the form. So let's take a look at that poem called The Canoeing that's in your packet. We went upstairs in a canoe... I kept catching my paddle in the banisters. We met several salmon passing us, flipping step by step, no doubt to find the remembered bedroom, and they were like the slippered feet of someone falling down the stairs, played backward as in a movie. And then we were passing over the downstairs closet under the stairs, and could feel the weight of dark overcoats and galoshes in a cave of umbrellas and fedoras, water dripping there, deep in the earth, like an endless meditation. Finally, the quiet waters of the upstairs hall. We dip our paddles with gentle care not to injure the quiet dark and seem to glide for days by family bedrooms under a stillness of trees. So I love Edson's a master at this. He often has these just totally surreal situations, such as canoeing in your house. Um, and, and he often plays with that sort of fairy tale quality that I mentioned before. Um, they sort of hint of Mother Goose, of Grimm's Tales, maybe your favorite cat on catnip. Edson's poems offer up terrific models. Their are simple sentence construction, accessible yet eerie narrative exposition, um, content to allow for episodic lingering without any kind of closure or explanation, and his deft eye for figuration are defining prose poem characteristics. They march into the territory of imagination, and they avoid the it-was-just-a-dream grenade that can often go off in creative writing exercises. The prose poem, via imagistic and musical and syntactical juxtaposition, knows that imagination needs no excuse to get quirky or evocative. And both Simic and Edson offer model dreamscapes without worrying about legitimizing or rationalizing alibis. Take a look, if you will. I'm going to skip a page, or actually go to, you know, go to page two. Um, and I want you to look at this wonderful poem called The Traitor by Sabrina or a Sabrina here? Is that there? She's here this week, right? She's awesome. All right, so here's, here's this poem called The Traitor. A few days before the first snow, the soldiers dressed like children began to appear. Come quick, said Beatrice, fetching Walter B. away from his scripture, and bring candy. Walter B. pulled on his robe and joined Beatrice on the balcony. Oh, look, said Beatrice, you can see their small sweet eyes peeking through the bramble. Walter B. threw a handful of red gumdrops into the air and watched the soldiers, dressed like children, scatter and raise their arms in glee. Feels sinful, doesn't it, purred Beatrice. They watched them stand in the field and chew. Which one, asked Walter B., do you think is the hero? That one, said Beatrice. Definitely that one, the one with the mittens. Yes, agreed Walter B. The others seem less festooned. And which one, do you think, asked Walter B., is the trader? Beatrice bit her lip and looked around. Maybe that one, she said, the one with the orange flower in the pocket of his vest. Walter B. agreed, but to be certain, he thought that he should ask. Little trader, called out Walter B. The trader looked up. I knew it, said Beatrice, clapping her hands. The trader came closer. The wind shook the orange flower loose from his pocket, but he did not run after it. He missed his mother. The traitor came closer, but then he stopped. He curled into his flowerless vest and fell asleep. Walter B. and Beatrice yawned. The soldiers, dressed like children, opened their mouths as wide as they could, but there was no more candy. They would never again be more candy, and so they sailed away to another land. So some of this should be sort of a conversation between us as well. Anything you notice in there that stands out? in this sort of um, immediate response to a poem, I like to sometimes do this thing called pointing, where, which is you're not necessarily passing judgment, but you're just sort of literally pointing at something that you notice in here. But anything in terms of juxtapositions or syntax or language that we've talked about so far that pops up for you in this particular poem by Sabrina? Repetition, Repetition for sure. Yeah, absolutely. In the back, did you I have one to say. What about that? Did you, do you notice... Uh huh. And such a great word, purred, right? Such a great piece of diction that she chooses there as well. I mean, I notice soldiers and children juxtapose in that first line, and then that kind of dramatic come quick, which suggests a little bit of is that panic? Is it fear? Is it excitement? And then juxtapose with and bring candy. Something's quirky and odd there, right? We get that sort of quirkiness that comes up. Sweet eyes peeking through bramble. Okay. Sort of sacred and profane, or good and bad, funny, playful with the serious. Anything else in here that you guys notice? Yeah, in the back. Maybe I'm misremembering, but isn't the Queen of the the Netherlands named Beatrice? And then their color is orange, and I don't know if perhaps this was like pulling on some historical situation as mock monarchy. I don't know, but I love that. (laughs) That's awesome. I have no idea interesting right? Yeah. and there is this weird kind of relationship between, I mean they're sort of they're doing their thing, they're on this balcony they're looking at and the soldiers are arriving and there's, it's unclear, are they attacking? Are they there? I mean, what's, what's the situation? you've got somebody on high looking down at the soldiers so there is the, the, the politics whatever they might be and they're not explained which is some of the wonder that comes into that prose poem it's sort of like parachuting into strange territory and having to sort of get your bearings and we don't often get all the clues but, but thanks for that, that's cool yeah? I had just noted that you said that you know, there aren't as many connectors mm-hmm. in the prose mm-hmm. and what struck me was at the very end each, many of the sentences have a clause yeah. mm-hmm. mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and it's a little different music towards the end of the poem than what we get earlier on. So yeah, absolutely. And so this is what happens when you use those connectors or you leave those connectors out. It's a it's a way of modulating tone and pace within within a prose poem. That that again, if we don't have the specifics of the line or metrics to sort of guide us in poetry, we allow we sometimes rely on the syntactical things to give us pacing and to speed things up or slow things down. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. Let's do this. Let's take a look at um, the last poem on page one by Timothy Kelly and the first poem on page two by Remy Nelson. These sort of go together. In fact, Remy's poem was written in response to Timothy Kelly's poem. Um, but let's look at Timothy Kelly's poem called Babe Ruth Pointing. Um, do we know the story of Babe Ruth Pointing? Babe Ruth, famous baseball player, fifth inning, game three of the 1932 World Series at Wrigley Field. Um, It's documented that Ruth makes this Pointing gesture when he comes up to the plate and he's about to get it back, and he sort of points somewhere. They, they don't, people don't know if he's pointing at the pitcher, at somebody in the Cubs infield who's maybe ridiculing him and trash talking, or whether he's pointing to the center field bleachers. But pitcher throws a pitch, it's a strike. He steps out of the box, steps back in, he points again. He takes another strike. And then the next pitch, after he points again, he hits directly where he's been pointing in center field. So this is sort of the lore and the myth of Babe Ruth actually calling his home run shot. Now, we don't legitimately know if he did that or not, but that's the myth, right? That's the ethos around Babe Ruth. So here's Timothy Kelly, and talk about juxtaposition, right? He's going to take this famous incident, and he's going to take Babe Ruth out of the baseball realm, sort of, and put him in a completely different realm. It's called Babe Ruth Pointing, and it's on the bottom of page one. When Babe Ruth points, the whole table stops eating. What is it, Babe? Mustard? Salt? Mrs. Ruth says. Pass Babe the salt. No, not salt. Babe Ruth, the Sultan of SWAT, stands up in his retired Yankee pinstripes and points. Mrs. Ruth is on her feet. Please, Babe. What? The window? The street? There's nothing in the street. George Herman Ruth, Bambino Babe, ignores her. He lifts his French bread at arm's length and points. His cap sits low on his bulldog head. His cleats dig automatically into the linoleum. Nova Scotia, says babe. It was always Nova Scotia. Always. Eventually, the babe slumps back to his chair, embarrassed silence around the table. A nice place, pipes Mrs. Ruth. Nova Scotia. Mountains, rivers, the ocean. I'm sure it's just delightful, babe. The babe leans over to me. Nova Scotia, he says, is the cat's ass. So here's what I want us to do for a second. And this is where your own work comes in and where you might fiddle with this and play with the prose poem on your own. Um, If we could spend a couple of minutes brainstorming and thinking about... um, some sort of well-known figure. It could be a celebrity, a sports icon, a politician, somebody who's in the public eye, and maybe with an action or a gesture that they're known for. Okay, So this was a quick list that I came up with this morning, and I don't know if it's particularly good. Um, this is maybe, you know, the younger crowd might think of Miley Cyrus sticking out her tongue. Uh, we might think if we're tennis fans, it's about to be Wimbledon time, those of us who remember Bjorn Borg falling to his knees and leaning back after winning Wimbledon. Um, I thought of the Tiananmen Square protester who's standing in front of a tank. I thought of Rick Perry in the presidential debates a few years back asking when, when asked which three governments agencies he would end in naming two and being unable to name the third and then saying oops. So can you think for a minute about a public figure a gesture um, that somebody is sort of well known for? Um, Maybe brainstorm a couple of those. Maybe write two or three down. Whatever comes to mind Um, and then we'll come back and we'll fiddle with this for a minute or two. Does that make sense what we're doing? Okay. If people are coming up with a couple of good ones, can we maybe call them out so we get a sense of where people are going with this? It might actually jumpstart some of our brains if we're not picking up stuff. Yeah, what what do you got? Hillary Clinton texting. Hillary Clinton texting. Awesome. All right. Some others? Yeah? Um, Kanye West claiming himself to be Jesus. Nice. Kanye West and claims of glory. Yes, very nice. Any others that are popping into mind? Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon and... uh, what is the thing? I am not a crook. I'm not a crook. Right. <laughs> I hear a little old and
0: entertainment Johnny Carson putting uh-huh. and Spock's Vulcan. Yeah. Oh, his little Vulcan yeah. thing.
1: Okay, awesome. That's great. That my, that's little... Oh, sure. So uh, there was Richard Nixon, right? And there was um, there was Spock giving his Vulcan sign and then Johnny Carson doing his, his little putting gesture for the, for the Tonight Show. It yeah. always right. used to irritate me when Ronald
0: Reagan would
1: say government. Government? Government. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, didn't George Bush used to say nuclear. Nuclear? nuclear? He said nuclear, right? Yeah. Carol Burnett pulling on her ear. Oh, Carol Burnett pulling on her ear. I love that. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Say it again. Sinead O'Connor and the poke picture. Sinead O'Connor and the Pope picture. And the Pope picture. Now, wasn't it, what, was, what was that? Was that Saturday Night Live? And she, yeah. did, she, did she do that thing where she ripped it? Naughty. Michael Jordan's toe. Michael Jordan's tongue. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, Who's the presidential candidate in 08 that was famous for Yeehaw! Was it it Perot? Or no, Howard Dean. Oh, the one with the scream? Howard Howard Dean? Dean? Yeah, Yeah. the famous scream. Hi, Amy. Donald
0: Trump,
1: just looking ugly. Donald Trump, just looking ugly. I like that. (laughs) (laughs) I might have to borrow that for a collection of a slim volume called Donald Trump is Looking ugly. Yeah, Amy. Oh, Michael Dukakis in the tank, right? Where he sort of had the, all the gear on and, and given the thumbs up from a tank. And he
0: also had a shotgun, didn't
1: he? Ooh, not it. He
0: the one in camouflage and
1: ultra orange. I don't know. Yeah, I think his his, pe- his people wanted him to look tough, so they put him in a tank, and he just kind of looked like a Smurf. He looked like a, yeah, he looked like a turtle. Yeah. <laughs> Any others? Yeah. Brandy Chastain ripping her jersey off after winning the the penalty kick that won the World Cup. Oh, that's right. Brandy Chastain sort of taking off her shirt after she hit the penalty kick that won the World Cup. Yeah. Cheney shooting. What's his name? Oh, Dick Cheney in his hunting accident. Right, the quail incident. (laughs) Yes, sir. Roseanne Barr scratching her crotch. And on that, I wish you good afternoon. No, there we go. so That's good. Awesome. All right. So here's what to do. Um, I'd like you to also think about for a minute um, a second brainstorm here and just sort of a common everyday event that might happen in your household or maybe where you work when you're not here in Iowa City taking writing classes. It could be at the breakfast table. It could be a typical weekend walk or outing that you and your family might go on. The water cooler... Does that really work? Do people go to the water cooler at work? I don't have a water cooler where I teach, so I don't know. A performance review, the lunch table, any sort of domestic or work-related scenario where people might gather or where people might do something or share something. In a sense, what I'm going to ask you to do to fiddle and just sort of write for a couple of minutes is to do this thing that Timothy Kelly does where he takes Babe Ruth, still in his uniform, still with his hat on, still wearing his cleats on the linoleum floor of the kitchen. Ah, but wait a second, we're in a kitchen. We're in a domestic scene. Pass babe the salt. Is it mustard that you want? The juxtaposing of those particular realms. So if you could take whatever your sort of um, notor, no, your moment of notoriety that you've chosen for your celebrity or your athlete or your politician, and if you could put them in a more domestic or work-related situation and let the sparks fly, see what happens. Uh, my only advice here is for the next two or three minutes is to just write, keep your pen moving. Certainly don't cross anything off that you come up with. And allow yourself to be as goofy and playful as possible. Okay? Does that make sense? See what you come up with. Just give it a shot. It's a way to get started on something. So I'm thinking of Rick Perry with me at breakfast this morning at the Village Inn, unable to figure out which third item he wants in his 2 plus 2 plus 2 breakfast. That's where I'm going to go. And again, be goofy, see what you come up with. Take a minute and just finish up wherever you are another sentence or two. If you have any ideas that are flooding into your head suddenly, maybe make yourself little notes on your paper so you can come back to this and fiddle with it later. So I gave, um, I gave my students that um, Timothy Kelly, Babe Ruth poem. And this is, um, this is a, po- a, a prose poem that was actually written by one of my students in response to the Timothy Kelly poem. It's on the top of page two in your packet. And it's called Tea Time with Phyllis Schlafly. So a little bit of history because there's some characters in here. Phyllis Schlafly was a, a constitutional lawyer. Actually, she still might still be. I think she is still alive. Uh, conservative activist and was a sort of outspoken opponent of, of the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, Betty Friedan comes up in this prose poem, the writer-activist-feminist who wrote the feminist mystique and who was the founder and the first president of NOW, and then Alice Paul, the suffragist and feminist, who actually wrote the Equal Rights Amendment um, initially in 1923, even before it was sort of attempted, they attempted ratification in the 70s. So this is Remy responding to, I think, clearly what she was studying in history and learning about at the time, and she used the Timothy Kelly poem to explore this idea. Um, Again, Schlafly was was very outspoken and and didn't believe in the Equal Rights Amendment. Um, So she wrote this poem called Tea Time with Phyllis Schlafly. Phyllis Schlafly gave me a goldfish. She named it ERA, and when I wasn't looking, she flushed it down the toilet. She asks why I don't cry. I tell her it is because fish have enough salt water already. They don't need mine. What I don't tell her is that the one time I went snorkeling, I kept my eyes shut the entire time. We drink tea at her house and she gives me a string of pearls made with the broken souls of Betty Friedan and Alice Paul. I say thanks and keep eating my biscotti. Phyllis tells me she can read minds. I don't believe her. She tells me about a dream I once had. She says ash snow and fairies and Panama. I am impressed. But clairvoyance is not hers alone. I tell her about nightmares, about her son in a Betsy Johnson dress, her daughter as a sergeant in the military, unisex bathrooms. She tells me ladies don't tell other ladies things they would rather not hear. She sends me out into the ash snow. I get to keep the pearls. So kind of a cool evocative landscape that comes up and does the same thing that Timothy Kelly's trying to do and hopefully the same thing that you're doing as well in your rough draft of your particular prose poem. Um, let's do this. Um, I want to look at one more uh, example of the prose poem and also try a little exercise, kind of a try this, where you're going to start one. Um, there's a prose poem that's on the back of page three by Jorge Luis Borges, and it's called Borges and I. Um, before we read that poem, however, here's, here's what I'd like you to do on, on your paper or wherever you're typing or tapping or scrawling or scrolling. Um, uh, what I'd like you to do is just write the numbers 1, 2, and 3 vertically down the far left-hand margin of, of your paper. So you have three things. You're going to make a list of three things. And then you need to have two columns. So a column A and a column B, and an item 1, an item 2, and an item 3. Okay? In that first vertical column, for number 1, would you please write down A hobby or an activity that you love to engage in. A hobby or an activity that you love to engage in. And don't, you know, don't get too nitpicky here. Anything's good. So um, number two in that left hand column is a food or a beverage that you absolutely love. A food or a beverage that you absolutely love. Um, And for number three, a writer whose work you absolutely admire. Perhaps the poet Carol Pagel, for one. So, one is a hobby or an activity that you'd love to engage in. Two is a food or beverage that you absolutely love. Uh, And three is a writer whose work you admire. Um, And in the right-hand column... Now you're going to go for the antithesis. We talked about antithesis, antitheton. as two things that are part of a prose poem sometimes. So for the right-hand column, for number one, a hobby or an activity that you have no desire to engage in whatsoever. For me, that would probably be bungee jumping. And you're continuing the trend down the list. So, number two is a food or a beverage that you can't stand. No, thank you. No, thank you. Food or beverage that you can't stand. And then maybe a writer whose work you're not a huge fan of. And if, you know, you could also come up with that could be any artist as well. It could be a filmmaker, it could be a visual artist. Your call on that. Um. Since you're all writers and preaching to the writer choir, Okay, so everybody has their list of threes. Now, you might use this, you might not, but let's take a look at the Borges prose poem, and then we'll fiddle for a little bit in our last remaining minutes together and get some ideas down for a potential prose poem. So, Borges and I. It's Borges, the other one, that things happen to. I walk about Buenos Aires, and I pause, perhaps mechanically, to contemplate the arch of an entry and the grillwork on its gate. News of Borges comes to me in the mail, and I see his name on a list of professors or in a biographical dictionary. I am fond of hourglasses, maps, 18th century typography, the etymology of words, the tang of coffee, and the prose of Stevenson. Borges shares these enthusiasms, but in a vain theatrical way. It would be an exaggeration to call our relationship hostile. I live, let myself go on living, so that Borges can spin out his literature, and that literature justifies me. I do not mind admitting that he has managed to write a few worthwhile pages, but these pages cannot save me, perhaps because good writing belongs to no one, not even to my other, but rather to language itself, to the tradition. Beyond that, I am doomed, utterly and inevitably, to oblivion, and no more than certain flashes of my existence will survive in the work of my other. Little by little, I am surrendering everything to him, although I am well aware of his perverse habit of falsifying and magnifying. Spinoza understood that everything wishes to continue in its own being. A stone wishes to be a stone, eternally, a tiger, a tiger. I must go on in Borges, not in myself, if I am anyone at all, but I recognize myself much less in his books than in many others or in the clumsy strumming of a guitar. Years ago, I tried to cut free from him and went from the myths of the slums and the suburbs to games with time and infinity, but those games belong to Borges now, and I will have to think up other things." And so my life leaks away, and I lose everything, and everything passes into oblivion or to him. I cannot tell which one of us is writing this page. So a couple things as we wrap up today that I'm going to want you to fiddle with. I think Borges plays with this interesting idea. I mean, you're all writers, and you're here, and you've got your writing hats on this week. But you all have other hats that you wear elsewhere in the world. And so there's that writer you, right? The other you, that creative you. And maybe you're creative and, and, and other and different in your, in your work life, in your home life. And so Borges is playing with that idea of the self and then the writer self, right? He, he parallels what Emily Dickinson says about the I that writes her poems. Uh, when she says in a letter, When I state myself as the representative of the verse, it does not mean me, but a supposed person. So there's that writerly self and then the real-world self that Borges sort of fiddles with a little bit in that. Um, So a couple things I'm going to suggest that you're going to play with here um, is that you also might fiddle around in this poem, which you're going to change the name of. Instead of Borges and I, it's going to be your last name. Cross out the Borges, and you put your last name down. And that's sort of going to be the springboard that's going to lead you into your poem. Okay. Often I'll tell students that you can sort of mimic and bookend what Borges does to begin your poem and end your poem. So, um, Zach, what's your last name? Griman. Griman? Okay. So in Griman and I, Zach's first line might be, it's Griman the other one that things happen to. And then if Zach wants to, he can also bookend the end of that poem with the line that Borges uses, I can't tell which one of us is writing this page. So if that's helpful for you to get started, that's great. And as for the little chart that you made, a lot of people have had success in this poem writing not just about the writer self and the other self, but also thinking about an alter ego out in the world, right? The other you, Okay? The you who might, if it were my alter ego, might actually like bungee jumping and want to engage in that. So in that wonderful line of particulars that Borges uses about a third of, not even uh, maybe a quarter of the way down the poem, maybe five, six lines down where he says, I am fond of hourglasses, maps, 18th century typography, the etymology of words, the tang of coffee, the prose of Stevenson, you automatically now from your list that you created have some particulars okay, in which you can have his grounding work in your poetry. Okay, in your prose poem and you might want to play with that and then play with the other list as well what is that other out there in the world enjoying or doing that you're not enjoying or doing so some people have had success in this Borges and I poem by thinking about an alter ego or you can fiddle with the writer self and the, and the, and the real world self as if those two things are different and I think that that's what Borges plays with here so let's take a couple of minutes Two or three minutes. And just brainstorm. Uh, and I would say, keep your pen moving as quickly as you can. Give the editor in your head at least ten minutes off. We're not going to write for that long. We're going to write for about four or five minutes now. But see what comes up And with your last name and you, this other you that's out there in the world. And see if you can begin to juxtapose some good images, maybe some clauses. See what you come up with as you begin to explore Borges and I but in your own terms we'll do that for about three or four minutes So again, take a minute and finish up a sentence wherever you're at. So I hope that um, this brief little introduction has given you some ideas, some food for thought. At the bottom of the uh, last page of the handout, I listed some other names down there for people whose work you might want to check out. Among them, Margaret Atwood, Jane Ann Phillips, Thalias Moss, Peter Johnson, Lydia Davis, Anne Carson, Campbell McGrath, Harriet Mullen, Tom Andrews, Lisa Jarnot, Mathia Harvey. Um, There's a great anthology also called Models of the Universe. I mentioned it before. That's a really good anthology of prose poems. David Lehman also has a prose poem collection. I think it's called, well, it's something to do with great American prose poems from Poe to the present. So lots of options out there, lots of things to explore online. um, And I wish you a great week of writing and fellowship. um, And good luck. Thank you, guys.